Once when I was stationed at the 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell, we had a, a change of command. We went from having a, an Airborne Ranger as a company commander to having a former mechanized infantry commander. Now, the difference between a mechanized infantryman and a light infantryman, as we were, is that the mechanized infantrymen, they ride in armored vehicles everywhere they go, and light infantry tends to walk everywhere that they go. And not long after our new company commander took over, we had a field training exercise in which he determined it was time for us to have a 12-mile road march, which that wasn't a big deal. We did 12-mile road marches every Friday under our previous commander, so this wasn't a bad deal, but he determined that we were going to walk from point A to point B, from where we were to where we needed to be, and we were going to do it over the hills and through the woods kind of way. And so we we took off in this straight line over the hills and through the woods, and after a little while, our our new company commander, he, he realized something that he didn't understand as a mechanized soldier. And that is, walking over the hills and through the woods with 60 to 70 pounds on your back isn't nearly as easy as it sounds. And so we got to a a road crossing, and he determined that we were going to do a road march from that point on. Now, a road march is overly, it's, it's, it's easier, because you don't have to go over trees and down over hills and stuff like that. But a road isn't straight. He plotted a course that was over the hills and through the woods that was straight from point A to point B. The road, on the other hand, went like this. I mean, it was just a long, long hike. And it went from being a 12-mile hike through the woods to being a 25-mile road march that lasted all night long. It lasted so long that we arrived at the range we were supposed to be at just as time to start training. So we, we walked all night. We arrived where we were supposed to be. We set down our rucks and we picked up training from right there. There was no sleep. There was no breakfast. There was no, no nothing. It was just moving on and keeping on with the mission that had been laid out before us. And those couple of days, they were a long, long couple of days. And they provided several opportunities for gut checks for us. Now, a gut check is basically just a a test of your character. It's a test to see if you really want to do what you say you want to do. See, a lot of people, they watch movies. And they see the, the cool stuff that the, show, that the movies show that soldiers do. You jump out of airplanes, you rappel down the side of a cliff, you, you run through a building. And all of that stuff looks exciting and fun. But what the videos don't show is that in between all of the fun stuff, there's a whole bunch of really hard stuff that you have to endure. And you choose whether or not you're going to be a soldier, not Not when you see the movie and say, that looks cool, and that's what I want to do with my life. You really don't even choose whether you're going to be a soldier when you sign on the dotted line when you visited with the recruiter. You choose to be a soldier in those gut check moments. You define whether or not you're going to be a good soldier. You define whether or not you're going to be a soldier in how you respond to those gut check moments in the infantry And what's true in the infantry is true in life in general. There is really not any part of life where we don't have to face gut checks. Even in our relationship and our service and devotion to Jesus. Because our our service and devotion to Jesus, it's kind of exciting at times. I mean, the God of heaven knows our name. 
He reached down and He called us to come to Himself. He personally works in our lives. He invites us to pray to Him and to talk to Him any time that we want to. He has promised to be with us, to protect us, to provide for us, to, to, do, to give us all of these great and precious promises. We have all of that. We have the forgiveness for sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a hope for a world to come that is better than anyone can possibly understand. All of that's exciting. But what we often forget is in between all of that exciting stuff, there's some really hard stuff to deal with. And the hard stuff is every bit as true as the exciting stuff. And in the hard stuff, we have to make a a gut check time. And how we respond to that time, it, it defines us as followers of Jesus Christ. I think you could even say it determines whether or not we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus. So we're going to start a series of messages looking at some of the gut checks that we have to face if we're truly going to be disciples of Jesus. The first one is found in the book of Malachi. Open your Bible to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the, the last book of the Old Testament. It's page 728. And I was going to start at verse 1, but I'm really going to start at verse 6. So when you find Malachi 1 and 6, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Malachi 1 and 6. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name. And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer a blind as a, the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there among, even among you who would shut the doors? That you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. And that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food. Is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from you, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock 
a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are a great king and you are worthy of our reverence and you are worthy of all that we could offer you and far more. Father, today, as we look at this passage, we desperately need you to open our hearts and minds to receive it. Lord, our flesh is going to push back. The world is going to push back. The devil is going to tempt us to push back. But God, your spirit is greater than any of these. So, Father, let your spirit work today to take your word, bring it to bear in our hearts. That our flesh would be put to death, that the world would have no influence, and that the devil would not be able to deceive us and lead us astray. Speak to us in this time and let us have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Fill me with your Holy Spirit this morning that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Father, what we need today is you far more than anything else. Father, challenge us where we need challenging, encouraging us where we need encouraging, strengthen us where we need strengthening. Do what only you can do in each one of our lives. That as we leave here today, we would know that the great and the awesome God of the Bible was our Father. He was our Redeemer. That we had a relationship with Him. And that as we go out from now on, God, we would bring glory and honor to your name. And all that we say and all that we do and all that we think. We ask all of this in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Right, you may be seated. Now, the obvious problem in Malachi that God is dealing with among the people is the kind of sacrifices that they are offering. If you read through the Old Testament, God laid out specifically what kind of offerings they were to bring. All the time that it talked about their offerings, they were to bring something without spot and without blemish. It was to be the first fruits of the flock without spot or without blemish. They were really to bring their first and their best and offer that to God in every offering that they made. But the people in Malachi's day had stopped doing that. They had begun to offer to God less than their best. They, they were offering God their leftovers, if you would. And in my mind, I can understand, I think, why they were doing it. The things they were offering to God, the blind and the lame, the, the leftovers, the ones with blemishes, Overall, they couldn't use those for much. You couldn't sell a blind and a, and a lame sheep. You couldn't give those things away. You weren't supposed to eat them. There was all of this stuff. So in their mind, what they were doing was they were, they were really being frugal. right? They were taking this junk and they were giving it to God. And they were fulfilling their vows to God by offering Him something. At the same time, they were saving themselves money. Because they weren't, now they weren't not having to feed this, this thing that they couldn't breed, this thing that they couldn't sell, that they couldn't really use for much of anything. And in their mind, it was a win-win situation. We're fulfilling our obligations to God. We are being stewards of our money. We're, we're doing this for our good, and we're still doing all that God wants us to do. And that was their mindset, it seems. But God had a different idea about what they were doing. Right? In verse 14, God said, in fact, that, that those who had one that wasn't blind and lame, that had a good one to offer him and didn't, he said that person is cursed and they were a deceiver. Because when you brought it to God, you were basically saying, this is the best. 
This is what I have. This is what you have commanded and what you have expected. And God said, oh, no, you deceiver, you're cursed for bringing and offering that kind of a sacrifice to me. That's pretty harsh. It's pretty straightforward. God was not even remotely pleased at what they were doing. So in chapter in verse six, he begins to just deal with them strictly, sternly about this. He says that if a son honors his father and a servant, his master, humanly speaking, why wasn't he at least receiving the amount of respect and honor that you would give a human father or a human boss in this time? Why did you show more respect for, for people than you do for me? He goes on in verse 6 and says that by doing this, they, they had despised his name. Now, again, think about the severity of what God's saying. God has said, this is what I expect, and really this is what I deserve. And by offering God's le- God less, they were saying, no, you're not that great. You're not that good. You're not really that worthy, Father. And so they were despising his name. And the offerings they made, he says they were defiled. In verse 7, they were offering defiled food on his table. And they were acting as if serving the Lord was something that was contemptible. I mean, they, they held it in contempt. I just can't believe we have to do this. This is stupid to do something like In verse 8, God again deals very strongly. You offer the blind as a sacrifice. Is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Again, think about, because we're going to come back to this in a little bit, think about the severity of what God's saying. As they offered God their leftovers. God didn't say, well, that's good enough. God said that this action of offering me your junk, this is evil. It's not less than best. It's not less than ideal. It is an action of pure evil. As far as God was concerned. And he makes a a comparison in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, about... How they would do for their earthly, earthly people that were in authority over them. Offer it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? I mean, you know, the governor, there was a certain amount of, I guess, taxes that they paid in that day that had to do with offerings as well. Well, the governor would kick it back. If they were to bring it to someone that was actually in charge, a person, and offer it, he would say, no, that's not what's expected. That's not what's allowed. That's not what's accepted. And so they weren't even trying to offer it to people. They were offering better to people than they were to the Lord. In verse 9, God says, but now he's talking for them, but entreat the Lord favor, entreat the, God's favor that he may be gracious to us. And so you're, you're offering God your junk, your leftovers. And as you offer God your leftovers, you're also praying, Oh God, be gracious to us. Oh God, bless us, Father, for the sacrifices that we make in your name. All while you're offering your junk, will he accept you 
favorably? And the idea is, is no. And their prayers were worthless at this time because of what they were doing. Now, verse 10, God gives three powerful statements to them. First, he says, he would rather they shut the doors as offer this half-hearted sacrifices. Who is there among you that would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? God would rather they, they completely quit. Don't bring anything. Don't pretend. Don't, don't show this half-hearted devotion and expect me to be okay with it. Don't, don't bring me your junk. It's better to just shut the doors to the temple, let the fire go out, and everybody just live as pagans, as pretend to be devoted to me. That, that's what God says to them. Secondly, God says that he, has, he had no pleasure in them. I have no pleasure in you. I mean, you can think about that. They were not even remotely pleasing to God at this time. When they brought this to God and they said, Here, God, we're, we're not maybe offering you our best, but hey, we're, we're thinking about you and we're giving you something, God. Be gracious and, and, and Lord, be honored by what we're doing. God said, I have no favor whatsoever in you. I am not even remotely pleased by what you're doing. So I was studying this. I thought about Hebrews 11 and 6 where it says that it's impossible to please God without faith. And I wonder if there's a connection here. And honestly, I kind of think there is. Because these, offering God your first and your best, that was an act of faith. You had to trust that God would give you more. And that God would give you something that God would provide for you as you offered Him what He expected. So their, their leftover offering really was kind of a reflection of their faith in God. And so they were not pleasing to Him. And then finally God says, Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. God wasn't accepting it. They were still killing them. And they were burning them. But it wasn't bringing God any pleasure. God wasn't rolling back their sins. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. God did not receive that sacrifice at all. He was, in fact, full on rejecting what they were offering to Him. And I thought about... Revelation 3 and 16 in the lukewarm church of Laodicea where Jesus said, I, I wish that you were hot, cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Talk about a rejection. When you're making Jesus vomit. You're certainly not accepted. And I think there's a similar picture here. Offering Jesus that lukewarm devotion from Laodicea, it made him sick because of who he was. Offering God their, their leftovers when he was a great king and a great God that was worthy of so much more made him sick. And he, he completely rejected it. See, God's name, in verse 11, was to be made great from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same among the Gentiles. The unbelievers. Now, in what way that would relate to what we're talking about were the Jews supposed to make God's name great among the Gentiles? And by offering God their best. 
You see, the Gentiles, they worshiped gods. They made sacrifices. They got that. But their gods didn't really expect the best. Their gods were okay with something, by and large. Their gods didn't demand exclusivity. Right? You didn't have to only worship their God and their God alone. Baal was completely okay with Baal and three or four other things, so long as Baal got something. But the God of Israel, he wasn't like that. It wasn't Jehovah and something else. It was Jehovah alone. And the, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, they saw them. And every time they took an offering to God and they offered their best, it would be something that would make the Gentiles stop and think and go, man... Maybe their God is greater than our God. I mean, look at what they're offering. Their, their God may really deserve more than our God does. But every time they offered God less, well, the Gentiles saw that too. And they said, oh, okay, never mind. Their God isn't any better than ours. Their God isn't any greater than ours, any more worthy than ours. We shouldn't. There's no reason for us to really take note of the God of Israel. In fact, in, he goes on in verse 12 and says that as they do this, they, they profaned God's name. They, they made God's name seem contemptible, unworthy of their best, unworthy of the sacrifices that God expected. Verse 13, it kind of cracks me up a little bit. It said that you, you say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. As they offered God less than their best, they probably griped and complained about it. And they acted as though serving God and, and doing what God expected of them was a burden. You know, the God who delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, the God who gave them the land and had provided for them and protected them, doing what he asked them to do. What a blooming burden to have to put up with for that God. And they sneered at it. The idea of sneer, I think, is uh, the King James, I think, says sniffed at it. And what I've always understood that to be is somebody goes, I'm not doing that. Now, now God says a lamb without blemish. You're right. I'll give him what I give him. And he can take it or he can leave it. That was the way that they, they acted towards God. Again, God says, they, you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Should I accept this offering from your hand? And the answer really is no. What God wants them to understand is, in their mind, as long as they're offering God something, he should be good with that. It's not like they're completely neglecting God. They're not just completely ignoring God. They're still giving God something. They're giving Him a taste. They're, they're acknowledging that He is their God, that he is, he is there for them, but they're not giving Him the best. And in their mind, God should just say, Whew, I'm so glad you thought about me. I'm so glad you, you want to offer me something. I'll just do anything. I'm just so glad that you remember me. But God is a great King. And his name is to be feared among the nations, and he would not accept it at all. They would, either, they would either offer God their best, and God would accept it, or nothing else they did really mattered. Their other offerings were in vain. It was a waste of time. God was so opposed 
And to put it in this way is not best, but it's the best way to understand it, I think. They didn't get any credit for giving God their leftovers. They didn't get half credit or partial credit. God gives full credit or no credit. Offering God the first and their best, that was full credit. Offering God anything else, you got a goose egg. No credit whatsoever. Because of who He is. And because of how He is. So as I was studying this, the, the, the gut check question that brought to my mind from this particular chapter is this. Am I giving God my best or what's left? Am I giving God my best or what's left? See, that's what the choice they had. Should have given God their best, but they weren't. They were giving him what was left. So we have to wrestle with that as well. At this point, you might be saying, but wait, this is about sacrifices. And we're New Testament believers and Jesus has died and sacrificial system has been completed, right? And that's true. We don't make sacrifices for sin anymore. We don't offer animal sacrifices at all. That's why nobody brings goats and we don't bleed them up on the altar and set them on fire up on the communion table. We, all of that is done. So we don't make any sacrifices at all for sin. To pay the penalty for our sin, to cover our sin or anything like that. But that doesn't mean there aren't sacrifices that Scripture says we're supposed to make. Because Scripture actually gives many sacrifices that believers make. For instance... We make the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews says, let us, or therefore by him, by Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What we do when we gather, we are making a sacrifice to the Lord. And every part of it is a part of the sacrifice. Scott makes a sacrifice as he plans the singing. Those musicians make a sacrifice as they play. Scott makes one as he leads. We make a sacrifice as we sing along. So in that time, just what we just finished, what did you do? Did you give God your best in that time? Or did you give God what was left? See, I've been in churches. And I've seen people during the singing to balance their checkbook. Or doodle or draw or talk to one another rather than than worship God. And our song service, that's an offering. That is a sacrifice we're making to our God. What kind of sacrifice are you making when you do that? Are you giving God your best? Or are you giving God what's left? Another sacrifice that we're to make is the sacrifice of good works. See, we're saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves never stays alone. James says, faith without works is dead. I'm always reminded of the Ryrie Study Bible's comment on James 2, and it says a workless faith is a worthless faith. And the author of Hebrews says, don't forget to do good. Do good works. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. See, when we do a good work in Jesus' name, that is a sacrifice that we are making to Him and for Him. And I want to define a, a good work as basically something that we do because of Jesus. 
I do it because of my faith and my love for Jesus. As Paul said, because the love of Christ compels me, I do this. So throughout your life, all day, we're given opportunities to do good and make sacrifices to God that is well-pleasing to Him. What kind of sacrifices are you making? What kind of sacrifices am I making? Are we, are we giving God our best through our good works? Or are we giving God what's left through our good works? Another sacrifice we're to make is financial sacrifices. Now, the author of Hebrews, he speaks it here. Don't forget to do good and to share. right? And, and share there is financially. They were a people that were suffering, that didn't have enough food, clothing, and housing. And so they were to do good for people and then to share what they had with those in need. The Apostle Paul speaks about this also. And he, he wrote to the Philippians. And while Paul was in prison, the Philippians had sent food and money, clothing and stuff to him time and time again. And when Paul wrote to them, look at how he described their sacri- what they had given. Indeed, I, I have all and abound. I am full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. Notice this. A sweet-smelling aroma. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, sweet-smelling aroma, that was the way the burnt offerings were described. And the burnt offering was done in the way God said to do it. And, you were, and they offered the things that God said to offer. As the fire rose up, it was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And so their giving was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And it was an acceptable sacrifice. This Wednesday night, we're actually going to talk about prosperity in our Wednesday night Bible study. Have you ever wondered why in America we have more than a lot of other people do? Why has God blessed us more than perhaps other nations? Well, Scripture has an answer for that. What we're to do with what God has given us. And in part, we are to make financial sacrifices. Every time we give to help the needy, every time we give to advance the gospel, every time we give to support God's church, that is a a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma that is acceptable and well-pleasing to the Lord. And so when it comes to our financial sacrifices, are we giving God our best? Or are we giving God what's left? We're to make personal sacrifices to reach others with the gospel. Paul describes his life as a drink offering that is being poured out in the sacrifice and service of their faith. Drink offering was something that was offered to the Lord that was completely... Think about a drink offering. If you pour it on the ground, there's no getting it back, is there? It's gone. Once it's poured out, it is all gone. And Paul was basically willing to pour his life out completely for the salvation of the lost. And in Timothy, he talks about enduring all things for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the reality is we are all meant to make disciples of all nations. 
It's not just those of us who or those who may feel that they're gifted as evangelists that should share the gospel and work to reach people. It's all of us. If you have believed in Jesus Christ and he has forgiven you of your sins and he has filled you with his Holy Spirit, my friend, you have a mission to make disciples of all nations. And that will require a sacrifice on your part and on mine. So are we giving God our best in trying to make disciples or are we giving God what's left? And I think there's one verse that sums up all of these sacrifices very nicely. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I'm going to talk about the sacrifice part in a minute, but I just want you to think about reasonable service. When we talk about these sacrifices, we're making them to God. We're not making them to the pastor. We're not making them to our spouse. We're not making them to a denomination or a local church. We're making them to the great God of the Bible who spoke the world into existence. Who forgave man when they rebelled against him and thumbed their nose at him. Who sent his son to be our savior who died horribly on the cross that our sins could be forgiven, rose again, makes intercession for us that we might be saved. The truth is, anything that God asks us to do is perfectly reasonable. There is nothing that He can ask us to do, no sacrifice that He could ask us to make, that we could say, that's just too much, God. No, no, He's, he's God. He is a great King and his name is to be feared among all the nations. And anything he might ask of us, anything he might demand of us, is reasonable. Perfectly reasonable. I like the, the message paraphrase on Romans 12.1 because it explains the idea of a living sacrifice really well. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. And I like that because, see, we often again, we make these ideas of what a sacrifice is, what we're to sacrifice. Man, it's everything. Everything. There is no part of our life that is not meant to be given as an offering and a sacrifice before the Lord. Our ordinary life, sleeping and eating, going to work and walking around life. Not just you're coming to church life. But if you go out to eat after the service, how you act and what you do, that's an offering to place before the Lord. Tomorrow when you go to work, how you interact, that's an offering to place before the Lord. How you prioritize your life, that is an offering to place before the Lord. How you speak, how you think, how you react, all of that is a sacrifice we are to place before the Lord. See, a living sacrifice, that encompasses all of life. You know, a sacrifice in the Old Testament, they gave everything, didn't they? 
They were took up on the altar. Their throats were cut. Their blood was drained out. And it was used in one thing. Then they were gutted. And that was used in one thing. And then they were cut apart. And one part went here. And one part went there. And one part went on the fire. There was nothing. Basically nothing that God didn't use in some ways. As a sacrifice. There is no part of your life or mine. That we are not to offer to the Lord as a sacrifice. The difference between the Old and the New Testament, the way we offer ourselves versus a, the animals, is that we're a living sacrifice. I don't imagine any of the animals climbed willingly upon the altars. But we must. And for the animal, it was kind of a one-time thing. Once the throat was cut, its participation part was done. At that point, it was just what happened to it that went on. But you and I were a living sacrifice. We, we can crawl on the altar and then we can crawl off. And what we have to do is continually, moment by moment, stay on the altar to give every aspect and every part of our lives to the Lord. All day, every day, you and I, we are meant to be a living sacrifice. So in our ordinary, everyday, sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, are we giving God our best or are we giving God our leftovers? Are we giving Him what's left? It's easy for us to say, I'm just giving God something. And that, that should be fine. But as we've seen in Malachi, God does not see it that way. God says if there's better that we can give him than what we are, then offering him our leftovers is an evil act. God says, cursed is the deceiver. That's pretty stiff. God says it'll hinder our prayers. It profanes his name among the unbelievers. You know, the unbelievers around us. They can accept serving God when it's convenient. I mean, everybody does something when it's convenient that they don't do when it gets hard or it demands too much out of them. But what really brings glory and honor to God's name is not the occasional service, but it's the consistent service. It's not giving him something, but it's giving him the best. That's what makes them stand up and say, huh, that's interesting. Tell me what's going on with that. Why would you why would you do that? Now, another reason we're to, to do this, we ought to think about our way through this question, is the legacy that we leave behind. As I was studying this, I came across a verse in Hebrews that I thought was neat. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead still speaks. Now, the story of Cain and Abel, probably familiar. Cain and Abel began to call upon the Lord and they offered sacrifices to God. And the Bible said that God respected Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And it made Cain angry. And so God went to him because God's good and God's kind. And God said, why are you mad? You know what's right. And if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. That's a paraphrase. And so Cain was given an opportunity basically to do it right. But rather than do it right, Cain lured his brother out in the field 
and he killed him. And then he hid the body. And God came to him again and he said, hey, where's your brother? And Cain uttered that famous line, am I my brother's keeper? To which God said, you know what happened. The blood of Cain cries out from the land for what you have done. And that's certainly what God was referring to when he said that through it being dead, he still speaks. But what would that mean for us? I mean, what does that mean for us when we make sacrifices? We make a more excellent sacrifice. How does being dead, we still speak? I was thinking of the idea of a legacy. History is filled with Christians who gave God their best and not what was left. And in many cases, we know them. We know of the orphanage man, Mueller, who just decided to start an orphanage and never asked for money, just thought he would pray and that God would provide. And throughout England, he started multiple orphanages and never once sent out a letter requesting money, just believed and, and God provided it. There are stories of there being no food and him having the kids get around the table and bless the food that they didn't have. And at the end of the prayer, the door would ring, the doorbell would ring, and somebody was bringing food for the kids in the orphanage. Being dead, he, he still speaks. D.L. Moody, my favorite guy from the late 19th century. Moody was an uneducated shoe salesman. He had like a sixth grade education. But he got Jesus, and man, that got all over him. And he went all over the world just telling people about Jesus. And in the process of doing this, he started a church that still stands today. He started a, a Christian publishing house that, that still publishes books today. He started a college for preachers that still trains preachers today. Being dead, he still speaks. I think that's a kind of a part of what's meant. Now, you're thinking, well, that's, what good does that do? I'm not a moody or I'm not a Mueller. And you're right. Most of us aren't going to be Moody's or Mueller's. But do you have anybody in your life that, that they put God first and they gave God their best and, and that still speaks to you? I have my, my grandmother Ross, my dad's mom. We called her Momo. And Momo was just this little bitty woman who loved Jesus. And she lived the majority of her life as a widow. And she never remarried and she never even tried because she felt God wanted her to be devoted to him and not a husband. And so she was a Methodist lay preacher. She cleaned the church. She, if there was something that needed to be done, Momo's hand was raised. She went and did until she literally could not go and do anymore. She was our family prayer warrior. And when you, we talk about our Momo with our family... No matter what else we mention, we mention other things. But her faith, it always comes up. Because her, her sacrifice, she gave God her best. And being dead, it still speaks to us today. We're going to leave a legacy. The question is, what kind are we going to leave behind? Let me give you a quote. I like this. He says, when people leave the world, they leave something in it. They may leave something which will grow and spread like a disease. Or they may leave something fine which continues 
always to blossom and to flourish. Believe in influence of good or ill. Everyone who dies goes on speaking. May God grant that we leave behind not a germ of evil, but a lovely thing, which the lives of those who come afterwards will find a blessing. What we leave behind will largely be determined by whether we give God our best or we give Him what's left. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.